0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss and I hope you're staying happy, healthy and safe. It is a big show, so let's get right at it. A little bit later on in the show, Chris Hadfield joins me. He's an astronaut, an engineer, a singer, a fighter pilot and the author of the memoir An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, the children's book The Darkest Dark and the photo book You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Last year, he wrote a thriller called The Apollo Murders. A Cold War thriller that introduced audiences to former U.S. test pilot Kaz Zemeckis as he attempted to stay one step ahead of his Soviet rivals as Russian and American crews sprint for a secret bounty hidden away on the moon's surface. James Cameron called it a nail biter and it hit number one on the bestseller charts. He returns with The Defector, once again placing Kaz Zemeckis in the middle of the action, this time as he takes to the sky in aerial combat to hunt down a high-level defector and uncover soviet secrets and i think james cameron would probably call this one a nail biter as well That's a little bit later on in the show. First though, let's get to know Paul Langlois. Best known as the guitarist and songwriter for the Tragically Hip, he was asked to play the closing ceremony of the Canada Summer Games in Niagara Falls in August of 2022. That gig got him playing again after Gord Downie's passing and the breakup of the hip and rekindled his love for songwriting. From there, the collection of songs that became his new solo record, Guess What?, emerged. In this interview, we talk about the music he wrote that is rooted in Gord Downie's untimely passing, being a solo artist, and much, much more. Paul Langlois joined me via Zoom from Kingston, Ontario. It matters to me, it matters to know. that this record sounds like someone who's writing back in kind of an interesting way, looking back at their life and lines like, I'm feeling damaged. Keeping my feet on the ground was all I could manage seemed to me to be something like the line that could only have been written by someone with some life experience.
1: Even when you say that line, it's kind of odd for me to hear it. Mm. Uh, Cause it's, uh, my manager who's also the hips manager, Jake Gold um when he first heard it he was like wow it's really like it's really personal isn't it and I was like well I don't know how to uh write songs I don't know any other way but um but the truth you know Mm -hmm. because I I can't um it just doesn't if I if like you know the young guys walking down the hill like I just can't get my (laughs) head around anything but um my experiences and um yeah you know that one was just uh that was kind of in a uh fog as we all were um uh a grieving fog after Gore died and um you know I just thought of writing a song and I was just like I don't know I'll just wait around and and see if a song comes and of course it didn't and uh so then I just I don't know somehow I let go and I, I just uh started writing songs that, um, kind of told my truth and, and you're right. Kind of looking back and assessing and, um, you know, just looking back at my life and, and how things have gone.
0: (laughs) You really get a sense that this is a record that is very personal, uh, for you. And I mean, there is don't leave me brother, which is a song about Gord and, uh, you know, his passing, And I wonder if when you write a record uh, like this, if it's cathartic or if it is just the thing that you have to do so that you can manage to keep your feet on the ground.
1: This one was cathartic for sure. And I think that's more because of the band. I mean, if I just did this on my own, um, you know, I I wouldn't have been so free to um, I wanted to write good songs and I wanted a band playing a good band and um which ended up to be all my buddies here from kingston um you know and enthusiasm and that kind of thing so you know it's disguised in rock and roll and um you know the songs just came out more because i had a deadline you know we were going to go in the studio in (laughs) november and here it was uh mid-september and i really only had one or two and i was just like i gotta just get to it and and write these songs and um lyrics of course are harder than music for me and so i just let it i just like them
0: deadlines are great in that way they push you to do things that you never thought you could have done if you had had all the time in the world this would be a much different record i bet
1: you know what uh, without question a deadline has always been the best um and and within the hip too, you know, mm-hmm. we would be like, okay, we're getting together Friday. So then on Wednesday, it's kind of like, okay, I need three good ideas that these guys are gonna like. Yeah. And so the deadline pushes you, or it's like singing at a wedding or something, you know, um, I have to finish this song because the wedding's Saturday night and it's <laughs> You know, all of a sudden it's Saturday afternoon and you haven't finished it. So the deadline really helps. I, th- I think it helps everyone in life, you know, just like, okay, yeah, I got to be there at two
0: and that's it. You're listening to Paul Langlois on The Richard Krause Show. His new album, Guess What?, is available now wherever you buy fine music. Tell me a little bit about some of the um, uh, influences that you may have had. When I was listening to this record, I was wondering if you were listening to kind of uh let it bleed era rolling stones i heard i think the expensive winos in there uh a little bit what what were you listening to
1: well but, uh i mean both those bands yeah yeah uh, you know, i love the stones um that you know big influence on the hip obviously okay. and, um and the expensive winos and keith and the, you know it, I there's a looseness
0: to your record that reminded me of the expensive winos oh really Yeah. Well, there's this kind of vibe that I got from it. Like you've got just amazing players and they're, they're going to do what they do best, but it's not, um, it it didn't feel to me like it was something that you would road tested for months and months and months, and then perfected every note and everything. There's just a great looseness to it. That feels like rock and roll to me.
1: Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. And and I think that was the process. I, I mean, we rehearsed, um, in advance of going into the studio but you know uh of the other four guys in the band four out of four work other jobs so we were in there for eight days but uh the only time um that uh the five of us were all in there were were three of those eight days wow and we got it all done then and we played it all live and i i played guitar and sang live i changed one song because my voice was a bit scratchy in hindsight. So I had to redo that one. But um, otherwise, it's just us playing live. And I think that um, hip love to do that. And I think it provides some sort of, as you say, just kind of looseness, but also realness, reality, you know, it's just like, this is just a band playing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's like an authenticity, I think, that comes with that. Uh, that really comes through not only in the kind of personal nature of the songs, but in the playing here. Like I, I just, uh, I felt like I was listening to uh, um, something uh, like a band playing in a smoky bar, which is always the best way to see a band.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's what that's the way it felt at the time. It was like, yeah. you know, we didn't question much, it, you know, come in and Hey, we really like that take. And, yeah. and then we would just go with that take. And, and, um, you know, of course we had to add, uh, the backups Greg Ball and uh uh mostly and Matt Mulvihill um just because they can't they couldn't really be recorded at the same time but we did manage we were in the bathhouse the hip studio to isolate uh my vocal and guitar and isolate all the other sort of amps and mm-hmm. and the drums so that uh no one had to go back and and fix anything you know it, we we knew the songs pretty well. And, and, um, you know, I was quite happy and proud about that.
0: The tragically hip cast such a long shadow. People love that band and continue to love that band. When you release new music, do you worry about comparisons to it, to that band? How, how, what, what's your thought process? How's your, how are you feeling about it?
1: Well, I, I, I think I do worry about, um, songs that kind of, touch on hip ground Mm. um a little bit it's you know I can't play any other way than I play and and you know um I was a part of the sound of the hip and so of course there's going to be like uh just in guitar tone uh, my guitar tone um can't you know I'm just not into changing it. it it's just uh it's just how i play and and what i sound like but um obviously there's no Gord, uh you know johnny sinclair robbie so uh i don't worry about it too much because i know i'm not uh, you know i'm certainly not singing like Gord. i'm 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 just kind of com- trying to come up with my own ideas so i worry about it a little bit but um i'm not worried about it on this record i probably have a uh, you know, it's my third solo record. The other two were ten years ago, but um there's not really there's maybe one or two songs um where I think, uh, oh, that's a little that's a little hippish, but um what can you do? It's you know you.
0: well it's your it's your it's what was a new young that's my sound, man, when David Foster told him that he was singing flat on uh um uh, the Canadian version of We Are the World, whatever it was.
1: Yes, yes. Um <laughs> Uh, no that was classic yeah that was classic and and it's true you know your sound is your sound and yeah. and I don't get into like with vocally um I'm not in the um you know tuning a vocal or you know the, the that kind of thing it's just I sing how I sing, play how I play and I really felt that way about the other four guys that they were uh just doing what they do and and I thought hey, this is unique, you know. I, I, that's how you make unique music. I know there's a big push uh, 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 away from that, but um, it's
0: it's what I like, and um, um, it's it's what I stuck to here. That was Paul Langlois on the Richard Krause Show. His new album, Guess What, is available now wherever you buy fine music. Commander Chris Hadfield was the first Canadian to walk in space and served as commander of the International Space Station. He gained worldwide acclaim for his breathtaking photographs and educational videos about life in space. His music video, a zero gravity version of David Bowie's Space Oddity, received over 10 million views in its first three days online. Last year, he wrote a number one best selling thriller called The Apollo Murders, which James Cameron directed. Of Avatar and Titanic called Nail Biting. I couldn't put it down. Following up on that 1970s space race thriller is The Defector, a new novel that follows NASA flight controller and former U.S. test pilot Kaz Zemeckis as he takes to the sky in aerial combat to hunt down a high level defector and uncover Soviet secrets. Chris Hadfield joined me via Zoom to talk about the book, The Mysterious Area 51, Top Gun Maverick, and much, much more. Congratulations on the new novel. Thank you
2: very much. It is getting great reviews and I'm really happy with it. It was a lot of fun to research and write and uh, I'm just delighted at the result. Thank you.
0: Well, you talk about reviews. I've got, uh, uh, this wasn't where I was going to start, but I love that your editor Ann Collins said, it's like Top Gun only written by truly a Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I um well, a- a- that's high praise from Anne. She is such a knowledgeable and skilled editor, but, um, but no,'m I'm, I'm really happy with it and and you know, I, I used to be a, a combat fighter pilot and a test pilot with multiple organizations. so uh so yeah, I, I'm in an unusual position as a writer to be able to uh to to write a story like The defector.
0: Well, you were a test pilot for the U.S. Air Force, uh, the U.S. Navy, the Royal Canadian Air Force. You were a fighter pilot there. So certainly you bring that uh, experience to the book. But how true to life is it in the book, in the writing of it? Because there are some things that might not translate very well to the written word. There are some experiences that that may be hard to describe. Uh, How accurate is this book?
2: you know there's a book by uh, a couple books by Richard Bach Uh, he wrote Jonathan Livingston Mm Seagull and he wrote another thing called I think it was called biplane and what Richard Bach really had a gift for was the feeling of flight the joy of flight the the rarity of being able to move uh, at will into the third dimension and I was really I read that as you know as a teenager I was really struck by those books of just how beautifully he used English to transport you into uh being a bird or or being a pilot yeah. and and so it was it was almost like a challenge right how well can you write this sort of thing how well can you let people in not just flying itself but flying the highest performance airplanes ever built and in combat with each other. And so um, to me, that was what I was setting out to do. And um, and so to get that praise from Anne, but also to work really hard, um, not overpowering people with the technical stuff, but having enough of it in there to make it completely credible and real, that was my challenge. And I'm really happy with, with how I did with it when you know, my wife reads it and she's sort of happy with what I do but it's not you know she's got her own life she's doing (laughs) her stuff not mine um it it has passed a lot of sort of sniff tests and to me one of the greatest compliments I've gotten from a couple of my pre-readers is I don't read books you know a couple of my technical experts like one of the guys on uh who's a guns expert and things like that he says now, I don't normally read books, but I couldn't stop reading your book. It was so good. It really brought me into the cockpit. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I I work really hard to try and make those sessions uh, as good and approachable as possible. Uh, and it's wonderful to hear people finding that, that it accomplished that objective.
0: Well, here's some other high praise. The publisher, John Butler, uh, who you're working with now, says that you're a natural thriller writer. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, it's, it's a funny background. Uh, the Bradbury family, Ray Bradbury, the famous mm. author, science fiction author, they asked me to write um, a new introduction to his book, the, the Martian Chronicles, a few years ago.
0: You're listening to Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, The Defector, is available now wherever fine books are sold.
2: I worked hard on it because that's a wonderful book and Ray Bradbury is so good with the language. Um, and I'm I, I'm really happy with that three thousand word introduction that I wrote. Like I researched it, I worked really hard on it, and it was that introduction that convinced John Butler, my, my publisher, that I had maybe the ability to write fiction or or even thriller fiction based on just how he saw that I used the language. And and I never, you know, I never would have thought that he would connect those two. But that's what gave him the confidence to approach me with the idea of the Apollo Murders and now of course I've written the Apollo murders has done great it's mm-hmm. it's being made into an eight part television series and and the defector and i'm working on the next book in the series now um but uh, it's it's also a big compliment from john i i maybe there's such a thing as a natural thriller writer i don't know but um it it took me 64 years to become a natural thriller writer um you know a lifetime of experience and reading other people's works and being inspired and learning um but i i'm delighted with with the position that i'm in right now to be able to share the very unusual type of experiences i've had as a test pilot and an astronaut in a way that maybe lets people see it the way nobody else might
0: I think that is very definitely part of the appeal. People know you, they know your your backstory, they sense the authenticity uh, that you bring to the work that you do uh, in terms of these novels. But I also think that part of the appeal was that the 1970s, when these books uh, take place, are kind of similar to where we are right now. There is uh, turmoil geographically, there's armed conflicts, there's even Cold War tensions uh, once again, social unrest. And so I think there's something about that real-world stuff that brings an urgency to uh, your books. You
2: know, even the very crux, kind of the the big secret of uh, The Defector, uh, I, You know, I can mention it, uh, this uh, nuclear rocket engine uh, mm-hmm. called NERVA, uh, very recently contracts were let to Lockheed Martin in the United States and Rolls Royce in the United Kingdom to build that engine. That'll probably be the engine that takes us to Mars and has tremendous, um, you know, application in Earth orbit as well. So I try and choose topics that are really relevant for the time, but also are applicable now. And uh and it, you know, when art imitates life and vice and imitating art, that's 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 the lovely natural cyclic nature of things. Um, but I think when you read the defector, not only does it tell the period of 1973 with all of that geopolitical tumult then, but it, it also directly reflects reflects back to a lot of stuff that's happening right now.
0: You were young in 1973. I'm trying to do the math in my head and it's not working, but you, was, were a teenager, yeah. you were very old teenager. Yeah. Were you paying attention? Were you watching yeah, the news? Did you sure. know what was happening?
2: Um, the the defector starts on the eve of the Yom Kippur War. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I didn't know much about that at all. Um, uh, but as far as uh, Soviet Union and and the cold war yeah i i understood that my dad was an airline pilot so i traveled i'd seen the iron curtain i i had some sort of intuitive sense of it um but I you know i was growing up on a farm in canada too so so the horizons are pretty local uh, on right. a farm but yeah i i was probably above average aware of what was going on geopolitically but it's been really interesting now because it it's still you know, history 50 years ago, but it's it was quite well documented, not just in history books, but real-time media, including video. Mm -hmm. So if I want to know, you know, what did Golda Meir sound like on October 6th, 1973, when she was, you know, making big decisions for the future of her country, or what did, you know, what were Nixon and Kissinger actually doing you know there's really detailed video of them speaking at the time and and so it brings a um, a reality and an urgency and a, and a uh a taste of currency to it that maybe wouldn't be accessible if I was writing about 1873 or 1773 and, and so that to me that that is i do an awful lot of research but it's nice to have that level of of a resource available
0: this is your second work of fiction was it different this time around what did you find the process easier that's a or...
2: great great <laughs> question you know uh yes when i wrote the first one the apollo murders i didn't know what was going to be in the story. And so rather than just research something and, and try and keep efficient notes, I basically took everything I thought that might be in the story and wrote it as part of the story until I had written uh hundred and ninety-five thousand words. Which version. for
0: people who don't know is uh <laughs> about a I don't know a three inch book, probably oh, a three inch two books. Book. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's two books. And so I'd written this enormous book. And then it needed to be, you know, all the raw materials in there, but it needed to be edited down to what is already a pretty big book. The Apollo Murders is 130, 135,000 words. When I was writing The Defector, just because of experience, I was much more efficient. I had a better understanding of, hey, I need this research. But I don't need to write it as part of the story to, to get it in my head as backstory or whatever. And so I was much more efficient in writing The Defector. And the book came out at about 100,000 words. And my first draft of it, uh, when I turned it in to the editor, was about 100,000 words. You know, we, we removed a couple things. I added a couple things. But it came out about as a wash. So, yeah, I learned a lot about fiction writing how, how could you not by by writing the apollo murders and now by writing the defector and as i'm doing research for the third book in the series now you know i've got the benefit of those previous uh two books of experience behind me and hopefully i can i can be as time efficient as possible in writing the next book
0: Do you think that the way that you streamlined that process is still uh, a result of the way that you often say you still think like an astronaut, even though you are earthbound these days, uh, you still, whatever project you're looking at, uh, you think about it in a different way than maybe some of us do?
2: You know, on my first space flight, uh, when I flew on space shuttle Atlantis, because i hadn't actually done it everything was of equal importance Mm -hmm. when somebody teaches you something you don't have the benefit of of, uh experiential judgment to go we don't need to know that everything is equally important and so you got to learn everything but then once you've gone in you know it's sort of like someone telling you how to ride a bicycle they could tell you all the theory in the world But until you actually go and try it out and and learn to ride a bicycle, and then you come back and you go, all that crap you told me, well, I only needed this little bits of it. You know, the rest of it was just theory. And so learning to fly a spaceship uh, is very much the same. It's just more complicated. And the second time I flew in space and the third time I flew in space, I, I could just, we don't even need to study that. That that's yes, that's important information. But we won't need to know it real time, and therefore let's not waste any time or brain cells learning that. And uh, and I think that applies to anything complex that you're going to undertake, whether it's uh, flying spaceships or writing thriller fiction.
0: is uh kaz zemeckis who is the main character in both of these novels uh the apollo murders and now the defector uh is he your james bond is he your harry potter is he the character that you'll be writing about for years to come
2: yeah i have at least i think two more books in mind right now we'll see how it all goes Mm -hmm. uh but i definitely have a continuing plot threads that make sense for two more books after The Defector.
0: You're listening to Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, The Defector, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Um, I I really made a study of it when I was looking at how how
2: do you write thriller fiction? You know, I I learned to fly F-18s. I learned to to scuba dive. You, You just, you get someone to show you and you do a bunch of study and then you practice it and get better at it. But I was thinking, how do you choose a recurring main character? They can't just have a run-of-the-mill job. They can't just be doing one thing because there won't be enough variety in their life in order to have them reoccur in multiple books. And that's why often things are like at a hospital because there's all those characters moving through or a police station or a law firm or Fantasy Island or something, you know, or Love Boat. It's because you have... Recurring characters, but a constant natural flow through of other things. So when I chose Kaz Zemeckis, I gave him all the skills. You know, he's got multiple university degrees. He's a combat fighter pilot. He's a test pilot. He got qualified to be an astronaut, and then he was injured. Mm -hmm. So that now he couldn't do all of those predictable things, but he has all the skills. So that frees him up as a wild card for me. I can now insert him into all these other situations and and it's not unnatural for him to be there because you know what else would the military do with them and so uh so I was I was quite deliberate in how I I chose a main protagonist and and I gave him you know uh as much an interesting back I didn't call him Tom Jones you know he's he's a Lithuanian Jew uh, whose parents fled World War II and came to New York and and uh with a name like Casimi zemekus but but he's a you know 100 through and through american and uh and serving his country so so yeah um i really like the character and the freedom it gives me as an author and then the people around him you know uh, jw the flight surgeon and svetlana uh the cosmonaut you know she wasn't even on my radar when i started writing the apollo murders but the character uh, naturally, sort of appeared as an option, and then once I started writing, what would Svetlana do next? Suddenly, she's like, "Oh, yeah, she's this is a really interesting character," and uh, and so she's in the Defector, and and then she'll be very much in the in the book that comes after the Defector as well.
0: I've had a, a number of authors tell me that. When they're writing characters, whether they are just for one book or they appear over and over again, there comes a point where the character kind of takes on their own life. Douglas Copeland told me one time, it's almost as if his characters sit on his shoulders and whisper into his ears what they want to do. Uh, Do you have any experience with that sort of thing?
2: Oh, it's even more than that, Richard. Um, they, They aren't just with me to help write the book. They're with me all the time you know they're they're like they're like perpetual consultants in all the things that i'm doing like you know when i'm faced with any sort of situation i hear what what would kaz do what would svetlana do what would jw do given that this is what's happening right now and and to me it's kind of funny but they are just as real as a as a voice within my own head as the people that are also my consultants. You know, you always hear your own voice from your own life, or you hear your parents, or your teachers, or whoever, your spouse, whoever else was influential in your life. It's it's quite a surprise to me that these characters that I invented are now uh, very much uh, part of my process in considering options when dealing with the world. So yeah, and, and then you just sort of turn them loose. Once I've decided the arc of the story, and uh, and where they're gonna come in, then they are just gonna do what that person would do next. And and, and then you got to go, oh shoot, that this is what Svetlana would do now. You know, what else would she? This is what she would do. And so the story has to reflect that, which is kind of delightful. Mm-hmm. Um but uh but sometimes it then pulls the story in a direction that i wasn't expecting but that's okay uh the book should also be a discovery not just for the reader but also for me
0: well if they're not surprising to you they may not be surprising for a reader as well
2: yeah Yeah, i don't want it to be formulaic And, and so to me that's the whole idea of it is is this interesting human being and now their face was something they didn't expect and it's historic and what happens next. And, uh, and I'm just as intrigued by that as any.
0: Is Kaz Zemeckis named after Robert Zemeckis? I just have to no, visit the film. I, I know you're a, a film fan. I was wondering.
2: No, he, here's my process. What, what I do is I sort of think about, uh, uh, what sort of person is this? And then I actually just do image searches. Yeah. I go, what, 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 when I have an image of this person in my head, what do they look like? You know, is this a tall person, a short person, a wide person, a narrow person? What sort of skin tone? What's their hair color? What, you know, what's, and then I, I do an image search and then I find someone, yeah, that sort of looks like how I'm visualizing this person. And then I go, oh, okay. So people who generally look like that you know what sort of names do they have and and where are they from and what might be their particular genetic you know makeup that makes them look that way and what part of the world did that genetic come from mm-hmm. and then I, I just i find like a bunch of names of people from that part of the world and and i i say them you know in conversation okay so talk about them and 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 I go oh yeah well that's perfect you know his name's Casimiris zemeckis pretty awful name for an american kid you know but cas that's the natural short form and it's it's what his call sign would have been and 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 it's a very american sort of sounding name so perfect
0: as much as you feature fictional characters there are also real life characters like real astronauts and cosmonauts politicians diplomats all sorts of things in here um how do you approach writing about someone in a fictional Context who exists or existed in real life. Well, first, I was
2: fearful of getting sued. Right? (laughs) Am I allowed to include real people? Um, So I talked to John Butler, my main publisher, and he said, "Oh, yeah, so long as you're not slanderous, or uh, you know, or or doing something that would be embarrassing, and especially the far further back you go, if you're writing about someone in the 13th century, I mean." How offended can anybody get? Right. right. Um, but uh, in this case, some of these people are still alive. You know, I have uh, Gene Kranz, you know, the guy failure is not an option. Mission controller. I know Gene. I was emailing. In fact, Gene read The Defector and loved it. Um, and I, I read Gene's recent, most recent book. So what I am is I'm just careful to make them true to reality. What would they actually do?
0: A uh, couple of quick questions. Uh, Area 51 features in the book. Have you been?
2: Uh, so I, I I haven't been actually out to Area 51, but obviously I've flown over it a thousand times on board a spaceship. And I, I've driven right around the entire uh, nuclear test range in Nevada. And I've been to the... You know, nuclear test museum that's in uh, Las Vegas, mm. and um, and so I've driven up that road that leads to Area 51 as far as you're legally allowed to drive, and and so I got it. I got out of the car and walked the hills around there. Really tried to get a feel for it. Um, But I've been to lots of military bases, some secret, some not, and so and and there's a lot of information out there about Area 51 mm. now too. So so. Um, you know, it's got a lot of folklore about it, but it's just a base, Groom Lake, Dreamland, Area 51. And uh, I tried to include it completely realistically and recognize it's just a place that very few people have access to where real things have happened and are continuing to happen. So I, I thought it was important to to get that right in the defector.
0: You're listening to Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, The Defector, is available wherever fine books are sold. Though you can't confirm or deny whether they have aliens there.
2: Yeah, I've never been there, so correct. I I can't confirm nor deny, no.
0: I don't think I've spoken with you since I saw Top Gun Maverick. But as I was watching it, knowing your history uh, with those kinds of planes, I thought, I wonder what uh, Chris Hadfield thinks about this.
2: Well, uh, I flew F-18s, and Top Gun Maverick takes place almost exclusively in F-18s. It is the best combat combat jet flying movie i've ever seen and i and it is so much better than the original top gun the original top gun was just a fun cartoon you know it was it was silly you know what was happening and they didn't really care about details but that's okay they were just you know kelly mcgillis and, and tom cruise as a young man but tom cruise grew up since he made top gun and he's become a very experienced pilot and he does you know a lot of his own stunts And he was adamant in in not just skipping past the reality of stuff to try and make it a fun story. And and, you know, when there's that P-51 at the end, that's Tom flying that P-51. And he snuck a few things in that didn't need to be there that show his level of of, you know, pilotness, which which I liked. And um and just the 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 brutal urgency of flying in combat and the wicked nature it takes on the body and and all of that stuff it was really well portrayed i was just flinching and twisting in my seat through that whole movie because it was so viscerally real yeah i really enjoyed uh, maverick mm-hmm. um and and uh and, and also you know his his, uh, the 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 female love interest for him, she was sort of age appropriate. It wasn't just, you know, silliness like so many of the movies are. So, yeah, I, and and it brought people back into the theaters after the pandemic. So, yeah, I, I really uh, have a lot of praise for that movie. It was good.
0: Yeah, it is a good movie. I thought it felt real. I thought it felt authentic. But what do I know? I'm glad to hear <laughs> that I wasn't uh, too far off the mark on that. Uh, Commander Hatfield, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you again.
2: Good to talk with you as well, Richard. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys the defector. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write, and uh, hey, I got it. it. Turns out I have a copy of it as
1: well. <laughs> but, uh,
2: but all of the early reviews are, are just great for the book, which is really warms my heart. So that thanks, thanks a lot. Nice, to, nice to chat with you.
0: That must feel good. The good reviews. Awesome. I mean, if people say they don't care about them, but when they're good like that, it it makes a difference, right?
2: Oh, it really does, you know, and uh, and so yeah, I'm very glad to see them. It's uh, it, and you know, to have people who don't normally read take the time and love it and then tell me that they loved it to me, that's the biggest compliment I could ever get.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to the third book in the series.
2: <laughs> me too. I just have to find out what the characters are up to.
0: <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much. Talk to see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Chris Hadfield on the Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, *The Defector*, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Former Navy SEAL sniper and number one New York Times best-selling author Jack Carr called *The Defector* a full-throttle, adrenaline-laced espionage page-turner. Get ready to blast off, he said. Don't like to read? You can also find the book at Audible.com. You can listen to it in the comfort of your own home. A big thanks to Commander Hadfield for stopping by to talk about his new novel and playing Film Critic with me. Also a big thanks to Paul Langlois, great to talk to him about the Tragically Hip and his new solo album Guess What which is available now wherever you buy fine music. If you've missed any of our shows, you can always check out www.iheart.com podcast to find all the shows in one convenient place. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.